Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Help us out in these trying times. Please. We decide Thank you. on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for, I believe, over two years now. So there are uh, 50 plus bonus episodes waiting for you guys. If you haven't made the jump yet, definitely consider doing that. Yes. And speaking of which, we do have a, a bunch of people to thank this week. And I just closed the tab on <laughs> the list. So Perfect. I will be here in two seconds once we get this bad boy open again. Because there was there was a lot of you actually, so I was nice. I was, I was impressed. Good All right, here. so we have um, Shaban Van Groon. Uh, we have Geronimo Coverubius. Nice. All right. Uh, drunk and angry in all caps. <laughs> uh, we have uh, honest. Clint Clint Deerker. Uh, we have Larry Brown, Tristan Sandler, Shian um, Singh, uh, John Royal, and I think that's everyone. Nice. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you guys for signing up and getting all those bonus episodes. Hope you are enjoying them. We appreciate the support. Uh, and the other plug, as always, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know that a lot of you are because I see the stats. Scroll down to the very bottom there and give us a good old rating and review. It helps us find new listeners yes. uh, as we climb the ranks over on iTunes. Um, but yeah, those are the plugs. Welcome back, guys. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, my co-host. Jamie Miller, welcome back. You might notice a slight delay in our rhythm this week because <laughs> it is uh, quarantine. They got us uh, on lockdown. Time. Yeah, and Jamie and I decided, you know what? This is going to be the first time ever we are going to record remotely. We think it should be fine, but normally Jamie and I can just get on an endless back and forth with no dead air. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that will not be happening today, most likely. Probably not, yeah. A lot of um, uh, anticipating the other and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's rough times out there. I literally haven't left the apartment in like uh, almost a week, almost <laughs> yeah. a week now. Uh, when you guys are listening to this, I'll have pretty much almost been quarantined for two weeks. Uh, Paul Schrader <laughs> is out here buying a shotgun and keeping <laughs> it in the trunk of his car right now. It's it's true zombie apocalypse here without the without the zombies, which I'm disappointed about, to be honest. But what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but two weeks ago, I think would have been the last time you guys heard with us before uh, everyone went full quarantine mode. And we were talking uh, with a friend of the show, Perry Rulland who, uh, as 
you know, being an encyclopedia of uh, trash and transgressive cinema, he uh, had to test us like every time. Yep. So he brought with him the the 1930s uh, Todd Browning film Freaks, which was uh, a lot of fun to talk about. Great film. Yeah. But to keep in... (laughs) Keep in line with circus horror, he decided to also bring on an Uroguro <laughs> film called Midori from 1992, which is just disgusting. Uh, can't even, can't even, words can't even begin to describe. Yeah, it's just it's gross. Like Andy colored assault of sexual <laughs> violence and perversion and body horror and just terrible, just yeah. terrible time. So we but liked it a lot. Pre- yeah pretty good film pretty good film for this show so if you guys haven't heard that episode that was two weeks ago on every podcast listener of choice um but last week for the bonus episode we did, we went a little bit more lighthearted. jamie and i had the chance to see uh monty python's the meaning of life on a 35 millimeter print before they shut awesome. down the, yeah. uh, the theater <laughs> uh got it in there. and yeah we we got that watch in there and it was a lot of fun um, and we decided to do an episode on sketch comedy. So we did alongside meaning of life, uh, in honor of, uh, Terry Jones's recent passing. Uh, we also did, uh, the soccer brothers, Kentucky fried movie. Yeah. Which, which we were uh, a little lighter on, uh, compared to little, the meaning of life, little, but didn't laugh very much in Kentucky fried movie no, as, in no. comparison to meaning of life, but still fun to talk about and yeah, had see, some moments see what early 70s sketch comedy kind of looked like uh, on a feature film level. Yeah. Uh, But that being said, um, again, that was uh, last week's bonus episode, patreon.com slash Lezoids podcast for that one. But this week, we are going full apocalypse mode. It's time. (laughs) (laughs) It's shooting. Uh, (laughs) we, we, We are feeling a little bit in the end times. We're feeling a little bit anxious. Uh, so we decided to have on uh, our second returning guest, uh, someone who came on, I want to say it was a year ago, maybe even over a year ago. It's like a year and uh, a half, I think. Yeah. 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 But it was one. Of, honestly, it's one of my personal favorite episodes that we've done. And we get a lot of compliments yeah, about too. that episode. Um, <laughs> we have brought back Esther Rosenfield. Esther, how are you doing? Yeah, you, you know, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, I'm I'm doing I'm going I'm I'm in my house, I'm not leaving. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I feel like that's 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 just the general vibe right now. Oh yeah, if you ask anybody. Every everyone's a little on edge. Everyone's a little uncertain. So it it feels like the perfect time to do to talk about the end of the world and the devil. <laughs> yeah, uh, because, the because and the one devil. one is literal apocalypse of confusion, and the other one yeah. is uh, very uh, social breakdown in close proximity. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but that being said, we will have uh, as, as we do. We have the guests bring on the episode. So Esther, uh, which two films have you brought with you this week, and why do they pair together? So the films I brought are called Prince of Darkness, directed by John Carpenter, and The Blair Witch Project. And the reason I brought these two is because um, I love VHS tapes. I love the kind of feeling and aesthetic of VHS. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's something where I like it when I'm watching a movie. 
on Blu-ray and I can see everything. That's always nice. You like to be able to see <laughs> what's going on. But there is something that's really like kind of warm and comforting to me about VHS while at the same time being kind of alien and scary. Yeah. In the way that it distances you from what you're watching, in the way that it makes it seem harder to perceive and maybe at like almost imper- imperceptible. Mm. And I think that works so brilliantly in both of these films where obviously the Blair Witch Project, which is shot both on mini DV and Super 8, I believe, but it sort of has that feeling throughout. And also Prince of Darkness, which uses that visual style in key moments to suggest something, uh, something terrifyingly impossible, incomprehensibly other. Uh, it's, 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 mm. it's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean both both movies definitely use it to cool effect. Blair Witch Project, obviously, it's it's sustained throughout most of its runtime. Prince of Darkness, it uses uh, it as more of a collective dream moment. But I do like the idea of sort of dreaming and like this physical, tangible object that yeah. they do in that. And we'll definitely get into that as we jump into Prince of Darkness, which I guess we're going to do right now. Let's do it, Prince of Darkness. Sweet. All right, we are talking Prince of Darkness, the 1987 American supernatural horror film directed, written, and scored, obviously, by John Carpenter. Um, The film has uh, many returning actors of John Carpenter, including Donald Pleasance, who we've talked about a lot on the show with... uh, and uh, even outside of his John Carpenter films, uh, one of our favorite performances of him was uh, Wake and Fright. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, really good. But also uh, Victor Wong, who's appeared in in a couple, and this film is the second installment in what Carpenter has referred to uh, consistently as his Apocalypse trilogy. The first film, obviously, being the Thing, and the third one being In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, we haven't um, covered that one yet. We have not covered In the Mouth of Madness, but now nice. we've done it. So we've done the Thing. We're going to do Prince of Darkness. So In the Mouth of Madness is next. We'll Beautiful. get there. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm excited. But uh, all three films definitely share a sort of Lovecraftian sense of of cosmic horror, of the unknowable, the intangible. Um, And obviously we talked about that a lot when we did our episode on The Thing uh, a year or two back. But um, I would say, honestly, I'm really stoked that Esther brought on Prince of Darkness because Prince of Darkness is my personal favorite John Carpenter film. And it's probably because it's the closest he's ever gotten to doing like somehow, even though he has to have a very consistently like um, moving plot through a lot of his films, it's the closest he's gotten to like real surreal, like Italian horror almost. Like I, I am mm. reminded a little bit of Fulci watching some of his horror sequences in this, like when mm. the guy turns into a pile of cockroaches oh, screaming sure. out messages and stuff. And you're just like, 
cheeses. Um, and so just this focus on like an, the, the inexplicable and human behavior in the face of it. And then obviously followed closely and intensely by like these really disturbing, sometimes gory deaths. Um, yeah, I love the, I, the use of like this, uh, I don't know the, the dialogue is just cause I'm a metalhead, but the dialogue is so absolutely like death metal. Like at one point, I think that guy <laughs> that turns into bugs and then his head like comes off, he's saying stuff like pray for death and you know like stuff like that it's just stuff that you'd hear in uh like technical death metal and stuff it's 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 fantastic it's a it's a whole mood (laughs) yeah it's 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 very like it's interesting because i think i think about like the last act especially the stuff in the mirror world it definitely ramps up uh to a point where at the beginning it's very I don't know if I'd call it a slow burn, but it definitely like it's it feels maybe like one kind of John Carpenter movie and then it reveals itself to be another kind of John Carpenter movie. Yes, yeah. no, I think that's spot on. Yeah, it, it really gets, does. Like yeah. the first half hour is is mostly just these, uh, you know, it's just that that campus life. You know, there, there's the students, the professors, the scientists and and there's quite a few characters, too. So that he really uh, he really takes the time. Uh, for you to get to know them, even though this movie is only like, I don't know, 90 minutes, 100 minutes. It's not it's not too long. So, no. Well, and the, the thing that's interesting, too, is that you're right that that's like what the setting is. But the mood is like immediately palpable. I mean, like yeah. when rewatching this film, um, I w- noted how long the goddamn title sequences uh, is <laughs> and it's it's just this montage of like something like not really you can't really see that something's off, but something is off. It's like, you know, the shot of the moon. And then it's just this priest just dies desolate and alone holding onto his chest. And then his score is going. And then you hit this campus and like that image is in you while you're watching this campus. And then they're looking at the sun, which seems like it's doing something weird. And then he looks at the diary that says like the brotherhood of sleep and the sleep awakens. And like, there's like, there is this like mood of, of doom and like a kind of like dreamy connection between all of these characters and the way that the scenes are moving. And even just the rhythm of the way that he moves between the scenes, um, connecting like this educational institution and then the, all these different scientists. And then these, um, obviously these religious figures, everyone, I guess, like, you know, seeking out an understanding of the world. Um, and then how basically that is going to come into question for every single one of them. But uh, I, I like that Esther kind of pointed out too, but the, the kind of plot trajectory that he follows is actually a lot closer to one of Carpenter's like siege pictures, like assault on precinct 13 or something where like everyone collects themselves inside, inside of a space mm. while they're being attacked um, from the outside, while they're being attacked from the outside. But what's interesting is that the singularity obviously going to be uh killing them one by one is actually the thing that they are inside looking at and they don't realize that it's i mean i mean it literally involves satan inside like a green tube of (laughs) jello just like like souls floating around (laughs) yeah it's it's a crazy visual yeah and and i i do think that that creates something really interesting because in his siege pictures there's like there's kind of like a a logic of action I mean, we've talked about yeah. Assault on Precinct 13. We've, we've talked about other siege pictures. There, there is like a characters reacting to a physical threat and making decisions. Mm-hmm. And then John Carpenter heightens that by making these people 
very knowledgeable people. Um, people who understand the physical plane of existence and science, and then people who are in tune with the more spiritual realm, and then how basically the titular Prince of Darkness on every single level disrupts everything that those people believe in, while also uh, destroying their fleshy bodies. <laughs> yeah, I love how there's like a like a science to the to the evil, like to the spirituality, like. For instance, just like we were saying, the, the 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 canister with the liquid, like that's that's a physical thing, you know. And every yeah. time that someone is sprayed with it, that's that's them kind of transferring that that evil over. And I just find it uh, even even you know, I mean, it's it's more towards the end, but even when uh, you know the devil's trying to be uh, unleashed, there's a whole plan in order for that to happen. Like there's a science to it, and I found that. Uh, pretty fascinating that it's not just magic you know like there were actually steps to be taken uh yeah well i mean i mean victor wong basically kind of like sets the the tone of what's going to happen to them like very early on in the film when he does that lecture that he's doing on the idea that like you know nature is solid and time is a constant he's talking about matter and uh he says something like there's something about truth in flesh and the solid ground that yeah. even though wind is like invisible, it's, it's still real. Right. Um, and so he, he's making a distinction between like the actual world and the things that are tangible. Right. Um, which becomes like, obviously really fucking important to where this kind of end, ends up going. And, and, and he talks about um, like cause and effect, like fruit rotting, water flowing, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and he, I think he ends that thing by saying uh, goodbye to classical reality because <laughs> our logic collapses on a, a subatomic level into ghosts and shadows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like that, that's an, again in the, the opening like title sequences of the film that he's saying this. <laughs> yeah, I think he even mentioned something like there is order, but it's not what we perceive it to be as well. So all these, I love yes. I love his character because it, it really does set up uh, the the perfect um, you know explanation for the cross between the science and then the the religious. It's really really good. Yeah, because they're, they're just two forms of of you know uh, I would say us humanity right. Right. trying to make sense of you know the things that are around us and and what's interesting is that uh Prince of Darkness is among Carpenter's most uh nihilistic films simply because he kind of comes to the conclusion that even with both of those working in tandem you still won't understand what the fuck is happening to you. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> as as he gathers, you know, all of these scientists and all of these people to to study this this green tube that has the titular Prince of Darkness inside of it. Um but you know, maybe he's all around us. Maybe there's a whole nother reality we don't know about. And yeah, the uh, Loomis, and I, I believe he's also named Loomis in this. He's Father Loomis, which is just Carpenter <laughs> Man. <Come on>. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's like alternate it, reality when the guy became a priest instead. You know, yeah, <laughs> not having a great life. But he, he leads all of the uh, applied and theoretical physicists and all kinds of different scientists into the basement of a church where there is the green tube of souls and like this subterranean tomb uh, where you know there's like Latin. Coptic Greek t- 
text uh, yeah. that they're trying to translate, and uh, you know they're they're talking about a secret that can no longer be kept. And do you feel it? The sky, his power, <laughs> the evil being unleashed. They're having arguments about Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, of course. <laughs> every every good uh, every good scientist movie has to have an argument about Schrodinger's cat. A hundred percent. Yeah, uh, the yeah. the worms, even the worms, are defying gravity, and the world is 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 bending. There's distortions of 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 the space, and meanwhile, there are a bunch of like Romero homeless zombies when led by Alice is, Cooper. I was just gonna say, <laughs> so awesome, unbelievable. He was born for this role. I will say, he stabs a guy with a bicycle. That's unbelievable. That's a great kill. <laughs> that really is. And then I just love how Carpenter just has to add the balance like he like he's balancing on the wheel the dead body it's just such (laughs) such a such a nice touch (laughs) it's it's really cool like we've been talking about like that there is this tension in this movie between sort of the dream logic and the more concrete logic of what Mm -hmm. we understand as the real world so we have you know the idea that satan is in is in the basement of this building, but he's like, it's, it's not Satan in the sense that it's this kind of incomprehensible, uh, being it's like, no, it's a green, it's a tube of green, like jelly. It's, it's something that you can simultaneously perceive and understand what it is on a physical level. But also there's this other level where it's impossible for you to wrap your head around what this actually is. And this comes to a head of, you know, in the closer to the climax where there's this moment where uh, he's trying to come out through the mirror, but the mirror is too small. So they have to get to a bigger mirror that he will fit. <laughs> right. get out. And it's like he, the uh, Satan is like constrained by, by the our physical world. logic of our world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's really cool. <laughs> That's great. I, I actually, uh, I didn't think of it that way. That's actually really funny. It's like even Satan can't figure it out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and 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 I mean, like the the majority of this film, you know, the these microbiologists and physicists and uh, these uh, sort of students of ancient scriptures, like literally trying to quantify the devil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, it, and and it's like he he does exist, but like maybe he doesn't exist in like a way that we can fully process on our plane of understanding. It actually reminded me a lot because we obviously there is a new film based on it. So we just talked about it recently, but um, it did remind me of exactly what Lovecraft was doing with his story, uh, color of space. Oh, which yeah. again was a meant as a refutation of um, other contemporary sci-fi at the time, which always framed aliens as this idea of a human-like society with figures that we understand and institutions that we understand coming to like enslave us or something. Right, right. And he was like, if real aliens came, what makes you think that they aren't like this weird shock uh, sort of like biological trip expression? Yeah, just completely <laughs> incomprehensible. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so th- this this feels like Carpenter wrestling directly with similar ideas of this 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 cosmic horror 
Um, and I mean, they, they even talk about how they were like, what is this thing that's like self-organizing or becoming something? And by becoming something, it's really just like, it, it's forming a physical body in, in our world. But like, what actually is it? I don't think they ever really find out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's funny because I think of, when I think of Prince of Darkness, I, one of the main things I think of is the rhythm of the editing and John Carpenter is better than like almost any other filmmaker I can think of at really capturing the experience of dreaming, even when he's not literally depicting a dream sequence, like Mm. a lot of directors or it's, it's then the idea of what a dream sequence is in, in film and television is often, uh, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what dreaming is actually like because it kind of, it's just sort of weird things are happening, but it doesn't really feel like a dream because it still has to kind of follow a typical progression and structure that's familiar to us in a way that actual dreams don't. And Prince of Darkness feels like you're dreaming in the way that the editing is so kind of, it's it doesn't follow any kind of logic it's so floaty and yeah. and and strange and it sort of moves from one thing to the next and you'd hard you know it just it's fascinating the way that it it's impossible to get your bearings sometimes it feels like things sort of just happen mm-hmm. in the way that they do in dreams and the way and you're just supposed to sort of accept that this is happening now yeah. It's, it's it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's the same way that that a lot of Carpenter films are based in like a logic of action and movement and stuff like that. And he's such an excellent craftsman that obviously that's there. But it's it's always in contrast with Carpenter's like really you know heavy style, very palpable mood. And in here, I feel like he really does capture it, like this like strange like unreality of very very literal people. Um, so like, again, these are people making very conscious physical choices on, you know, the direct things they can see in front of them, but wrestling with something that is like, you know, way beyond, um, their understanding, something that is both organic and like, um, completely spiritual at the same time, which is really, I think solidified in the thing that Esther mentioned at the top of the show in those VHS dream sequences mm. which Carpenter shot um, with a um, video camera and then um, played it back on a television set and filmed it with his really nice cameras, his really nice 35 millimeter cameras. He filmed the television set. Oh, so that's, that's so what, cool. that's what gives you that, really that that feeling of kind of being almost i think he describes it as he was uh, dislocated i think was the word that, that he tried to use that yeah. he was he was trying mm-hmm. to accomplish where like there is a texture of the television that he doesn't show you the television so obviously you can't see that but like that that disconnect between his camera and the video playing they are two separate physical things, but what he's showing you is something so surreal as like a black figure walking out in, in, in the church, which we're then led to believe is actually a message from the future. Right. And they, and they start talking about the idea of like, uh, you know, sort of like beamed 
transmissions and information moving backwards and us registering it through like our organic bodies through electrostimulus and stuff like this. So then it becomes sort of like a sense of dreams and, and premonition and, but also a literal visual video message sent by other humans. So then it, then it kind of becomes, is, is that what watching video is? Is that what capturing video and showing it to someone else is you're sending them a message like that. Right. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Again, he never sort of explicates on this literally, but just in his actual style and his form, that's what he gets me thinking about. And then he gets into the surreal horror sequences where again, people are turning into cockroaches. People are decapitating people. One dude is just singing amazing grace before he slits his own throat with like a wooden well, uh, yeah. piece of wood. Oh my God. His, by the way, I wanted to say, uh, his performance is fantastic. Like when he starts to break down, he's got this, uh, look because he's, he's constantly like hysterically laughing, but his eyes just scream sadness and like, he's just going insane. And yeah, I just wanted to point out that guy's performance is is really un, unreal when things start to break down mm. also i uh, wanted to mention what do you guys think of uh the 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 humor that's like that's pretty much throughout <laughs> this entire thing which i found i i thought m- mostly with john carpenter he kind of like sets up uh some humorous characters and then as it goes uh as the movie progresses it kind of goes away but like you have that one guy doing quips even while even while this girl's face is completely deteriorating, you know, she's turning into the devil himself and she's got mind powers and he's trapped in a closet and he's still like, you know, making the joke about the the Asian lady and, and all that stuff. So I was just like, honestly, it just it just reminded me of going to college. Hell <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I just found it interesting because like uh, it was reminding me a bit of like Christine in, in, in tone. A little bit just because it they you had your horror elements uh but then the quips were still kind of there um with a couple right but see, it's interesting because like i less near the end with the christine obviously well and i was gonna say like i i don't find it like i don't find a lot of his his jokes like actually that funny oh I think no it's more yeah. like he just thinks that they're really funny and I, like no one else even finds them funny either they're like dude like <laughs> absolutely like they're supposed to be totally lame jokes because it, it's, it's mostly dennis dunn's character you think um, it's probably his character just trying to uh deal with the situation that's kind of how you read yeah it. because well just because like no one else in the movie really does it yeah it's really just this one guy <laughs> I, mean, I just find it amazing that he constantly does it he never stops like yeah as as far as like looking at (laughs) he's looking at someone he knows like being covered in boils and having their skin ripped off yeah like like, her stomach is growing a six foot like giant blister oh man yeah it was yeah it was that part i guess was kind of funny to me it's just his his lack of like uh taking it seriously even at that point yeah even after they've had like their friends like turning into monsters <laughs> yeah, and like relaying relaying messages about how like uh what is he he's like i've got a message for you and you're not gonna like it and then he says yeah. pray for death but they've also been getting like text messages of like this is not a dream you will not be saved uh, like yeah. uh, <laughs> i live <laughs> i live yeah the the beast is the beast is unleashed stuff like that it's just just crazy yeah, and 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 as soon as he hits like that, that really surreal 
like Italian horror surrealism, horror sequencing in that last act. And then they get into the mirror world stuff. Like for me, that's just uh, genuinely some of the scariest stuff that Carpenter has, has ever shot, even if it's not yeah. as like, um, you know, gory as someone like Fulci, or if it's not even as, you know, um, some, some of the imagery, it just that- really disturbs me. Like yeah. even, even just, even just the shot of, like Satan's arm being pulled through the mirror. That's one of or, my favorites for sure. Cause it's just mine the, too. the detail of just the giant red veiny hand with like the black nails and everything. It was, was just enough to visualize this like 12 foot giant beast from hell. And uh, it's fantastic. Also the shot of uh, it's like this amazing surreal shot where it's, it's in the mirror world and it's, it's the shot of uh, I think it's Catherine. And it's her just reaching for the mirror right before the lights go out. And then yes. it, it's so just, oh, it's so creepy. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, because, because, because in, order, in order to save everyone, she uh, pushes. Yeah, tackles the, the, yeah, the she, she tackles the uh, one girl who is, is being possessed or being mind controlled by Satan to help Satan leave. And so she pushes her through the mirror. And then once they all make it through the mirror, that's when Loomis throws like a fire axe at it. And just watching a priest throw a fire axe <laughs> at a mirror that just had Satan come out of it is just like, it, it's so absurd when you say it out loud. But when you're watching it, like you do, it is, it is serious and it's very disturbing. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, but that shot where before the axe hits the mirror, and she is just drowned in like this black abyss and she's reaching back towards the light yep. dead. And then the light just goes out because the mirror shatters and they've, you know, they've, they've disabled Satan's entry point into the, the real world, supposedly like just on like a literal plot level that is scary. And then in the context of all of these, you know, people of science and people of spirituality being like, what the fuck the people, the most ready to be engaged with what's happening in front of their eyes. And they're like, I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. So it's scary on that level. And then Carpenter doesn't even let you escape from there because even just having, even just the knowledge that something is out there just torments this main guy all the way until the final image of the film. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something incredibly scary about seeing, even if it's just, it's only a couple seconds and it's not even detailed. You just see a mirror and then a, and then a blackness that has just water. There's something about that kind of an abyss uh, that represents where all evil lies. That's just so, so scary to me. So yeah, it's very effective. Yeah. And then, and then obviously everyone sharing the collective dream. Cause it goes back to the dream imagery where he's having a dream, but he's instead seeing Catherine now as the shadowy figure coming right. out. But by the way, uh, I, I realized also in that scene that you can hear the dialogue in the transmission near the end uh-huh. and, uh, they are transmitting from the year 1999. Mm-hmm. Oh really? Which, you know, what movie came out in the year 1999? <laughs> is it, is, I is, knew. is it Blair the- Witch Project? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, to be honest, I thought you were going to say "In the Mouth of Madness" because because of the trilogy. I was like, uh, "Oh, no. he set it up years, before, <laughs> a decade before." No, Esther set it up. I, yeah, I, yeah, it was that's my a, master plan all along. That's awesome. That is awesome. But yeah, I, I gotta say, like, um, 
I like if we're pivoting towards the reductive rating round, like I I just I really love this film. Um I think that this is one of Carpenter's scariest films just because again it it engages with like his sort of literal plot logic that he likes to do, mm-hmm. but also with the most like surrealism he's ever tried to do at the same time. It's almost like he himself is wrestling with like, you know, uh the the indescribable and it's it's really a depiction of like, uh, you know, he's doing like agent evil. He has like messages from future future and the paranormal. He's doing like a riff on Fulci and the exorcist uh, <laughs> and one of his siege pictures, like at the same time. And it makes sense in the story as we're watching all of these characters, you know, who are uh, sort of like trapped in like this, this fleshy plane of existence and understanding. And the thing breaking into that world, almost siege-like, is the cosmic and the otherworldly. And even just his focus on, like, mirrors and candlelight and catacombs. And there's something that I feel is, like, genuinely gets into, like, mystic and apocalyptic with this in ways that some of his other films just... um, they just can't, I guess, because of the, the the material. I mean, obviously, the thing has its own um, cosmic elements going on to it, and it's yeah. indescribable. Um, but there, there's something that hits on just uh, an, a, a further spiritual level uh, for me. Because I mean, like the thing and this uh, spoiler alert are both like fives for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I do just got to say, there's there's something about how he depicts like this idea of like, you know, the spiritual, but the spirit is like connected to a body It's connected to these textures, which can be mutilated by violence and manipulated by video. And I feel like that's just what his style really captures. And it's kind of scary actually. Um, So I find it just his most like, like one of his most expressive films um, about, you know, our kind of vulnerable existence and our perceptions being questioned and eventually sort of like disrupted by this, this evil. And I mean, eventually annihilated in the same way that like, uh, you know, the, the characters are just like picked off. Um, yeah. It doesn't, it, it doesn't go quite slasher movie. Cause that's not like really what it feels like. It feels like more of like just a really violent breakdown because most of the violence is actually dealt um By almost like to oh yeah and, and and to their own bodies yeah like a lot of people are 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 mutilating themselves or turning or transforming in into something so it it's really like again an evil that exists sort of like not just beyond our reach but like our imagine imagination mm-hmm and the way that he also does that in in a way that suggests that, you know, th- there's not really much hope. There's not a lot of salvation that you're going to find. Uh, it can't be stopped and you won't understand it. <laughs> yeah. Something I found uh, funny. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Something I found funny that Loomis says, uh, oh, by the way, I'm going to I'm going to give it a, a four. It's a very, very high four. I think this is a fantastic Carpenter film. Um but I love how Loomis, I think he says something at the end where he's like, through the grace of God, I stopped it. And I'm just kind of like, <laughs> after all this that you went through, I, I just don't think, uh, I, I just don't think one, it was you. And two, and two I don't know if uh, 
God had a lot to do with this one, you know? <laughs> so so I, was, I, I just find it funny that his character was still like, after all of this, this experience, after seeing all the destruction and, and kind of what even their curiosity brought them. Because, uh, I mean, without them diving into this, I'm not sure if it would have been unleashed. So uh, I, just, I just found that interesting to his character. Yeah, again, um, I, 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 I feel like it's just like a, like, like a coping thing. Yeah. It's literally just like, he, go, he reverts back to his Bloody understanding. Bro- because before he's super sure. pissed that he's, he's they, they actually mention the idea of like Catholicism, like selling people a story about how Satan isn't really real. He's just this thing that lives inside of us that we need to, you know, atone for. We need to. Right, right. Uh, it's like your own and, personal sins rather than this tangible thing that is out to get you. Exactly. And then all of a sudden he's just, you know, he's, his whole world is shattered that the Catholic church actually hid the literal physical Satan in a basement. <laughs> <In> a basement. <laughs> <laughs> when you say it so literally like that, it, it's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Well, that's just it. Like it's, it's so like conceptually silly. So it's a real testament to Carpenter's craft that like, this is actually like you take this, it has Seriously. a severe, yeah a severity to it and a danger to it that is, is genuinely palpable. And again, having this idea of like theoretical physics and like, you know, matter and antimatter existence, creation, destruction, and all of this stuff that he, he, he fits into it. It's just, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I want to mention is just the, uh, that final shot is unbelievably scary. Uh, just this kind of like, cause you know, he brings this thought of, uh, uh, he he sets up this this imagery of the mirror and what it represents this kind of uh, portal to the other side and and this this mix of knowing and unknowing and then just to end your film with him a centimeter away from the answers yeah. and then just cut away and give you nothing is ah uh, just just yeah fuck you and also god bless you john carpenter you know yeah well and i I love too that he he has that dream and then he realizes he wakes up beside her and then it's like a dream within a dream and then he wakes up and he's super sweaty and he's like touching his sweaty face and then reaching out to touch the mirror so it's it's highlighting his like his body's tangibility right before he goes to reach out to touch the mirror and yeah cuts away before he can touch the mirror because you have no idea if he's traumatized and that's what's doing this to him, which is very possible. Or if he's having or another connected dream sequence. Another moment, like, exactly. Yeah, that could that other people could be experiencing too. Yeah, Prince of Darkness is one of my favorite films of all time. It's oh, yeah. amazing. It really like captures things, like particular interests of mine, especially when it comes to horror, uh, that not a lot of movies do. Uh, particularly the the VHS stuff, so it's uh it's an easy five for me. I nice. I, I love it very dearly. Beautiful, oh, yeah. Also, uh, one one weird moment that I forgot to mention. Uh, the the one girl who gets a, a a bruise in the shape of a cross on her arm and it's like, yeah, it's fine. Oh yeah, I love that because like <laughs> at first it does look like a bruise, and then at a certain point I'm like, that is. Just so obviously something else, girl. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will wrap it up for uh, Prince of Darkness there. We are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. No, I know we're not lost. 
They're all over the place. But how do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not going to play with that either. And it's not because of me that we're here now. <laughs> Hungry. And cold. And hunted. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. <laughs> All right, we are back and we are talking The Blair Witch Project, the 1999 American supernatural horror film written, uh, directed, and edited by uh, Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Uh, Most of you should be familiar with this film. Um, Yeah. uh, Obviously, uh, it follows uh, Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and uh, Josh Leonard, all uh, playing self-titled characters, um, posing as three uh, film students who in 1994 are um, investigating the myth of the Blair Witch who has been kidnapping students and uh, other random hunters and and kids uh, and making them disappear in the woods uh, in Maryland. So they decided they are going to shoot a documentary about this myth, um, and and if the myth is real, and a year uh, a year later, supposedly their footage was found, and we are watching that footage. So that being said, it is one of the early found footage films. There were other found footage films before this, such as Cannibal Holocaust. But huh. uh, the modern era of found footage that basically uh, went on to exist pretty. Uh, I would say it was a pretty popular genre for at least like 10 years or so, uh, 10 to 15. Yeah. came directly out of the Blair witch project, which many of you probably know. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who probably had a chance to like see it in theaters and stuff. But, uh, I had a weird experience with the Blair witch project where I watched it in kind of like suboptimal settings and, uh, like really late, like after found footage was like a thing for a while. So when I first watched it, I was like, that's the movie everyone was like really scared of. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention that too. I had this thing while I was watching it this time that I I watched this a bit uh, earlier on. Like I was, I was younger uh, because my, my friends uh, had it and they were the friends that I could go over and watch R rated movies. The parent, the the, the movies (laughs) my parents wouldn't let me watch. And uh, so we would watch horror movies mostly all the time. And this was one of them. And I just remember thinking like, these guys are just camping. I don't know why they're freaking out so much. And, and, and now being like an adult and uh, having my comforts in my, in my life and all that, the getting lost part of this film is without a doubt the fucking scariest part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think, especially rewatching this film, the, the key to the film is that w- what is scary about it is honestly less like the tent shaking at night which is like scary oh and like them running and not knowing what it is but like if you watch this movie and you want that you know there's really only like five to ten minutes of that in the film yeah most (laughs) of it is a deterioration of like their relationship and uh their their own mental state yeah exactly and and rewatching it uh like after I mean, found found footage is is kind of I, I wouldn't say it's an entirely dead genre, but it's definitely not as popular as it was ten years ago. Yeah, they really uh, beat we, it to we death. We were getting a paranormal activity like every two years, and there were like, 
other other ones in between that. Um, I remember seeing a lot of really shitty found footage in like the year 2012. Oh yeah, tons. Um, but but being like a decade separated from that now, uh, it is easier to engage with what this film is doing and what it's doing really well. Um, and my most recent rewatch of, of doing it, I did find it probably the scariest I've, I've ever found it actually. So yeah, me I was too. glad to get a chance to rewatch it. But Esther, maybe you can walk us through like your first time that you saw this. Yeah. So uh, just, just up front, I want to say I adore found footage. It's probably like, it's, it's m- maybe my like number one kind of special interest in film. I just, I, I adore it. It's so cool in uh, it in the way that it kind of changes the rules of how you normally experience a movie. Mm-hmm. And it, Blair Witch Project is, do I want to say it's the best found footage film? There are a lot of great <laughs> ones. There are a lot of ones that I love very dearly. I would say it's up there for sure. It is probably the one that that I've seen that best and it's a close race, but that best uses found footage sort of to the point of abstraction in the way that the imagery in this film is often like so blurry, literally blurry Mm -hmm. and confused. And you, you know, there, I remember, you know, kind of famously one of a lot of famous stories about the release of this film, but one of them is that people uh, walked out of the theater, like sick, they got motion sickness from watching. Um, (laughs) And that kind of recurred when Cloverfield came out in 2008 and theaters had to put signs up that were like, uh, not literally this, but they were basically saying, take a Dramamine if you have to, because <laughs> it, it's going to be crazy in there. You're going to have a time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, oh God, uh, Blair Witch Project is, it's amazing. It's so cool. We talked about kind of the way that VHS um, creates a distance from what you're watching in the way that a film that you watch on Blu-ray that uh, there's a lot of kind of talk in around in like tech circles about how you want a film to to look as real as possible and you see every detail and that kind of thing that that does not work for this film at all um i've seen this film i have four different versions of this film and the (laughs) blu-ray version the upscale they did is by far the worst it looks terrible on blu-ray because they, it, it it completely destroys sort of the mystery mm. that that was initially there, and this film looks amazing on VHS because it maintains and enhances that sense of like you don't even know what you're seeing. You almost get the sense that you're not supposed to be watching this. Um, it kind of this is one of those found footage films that like it maintains that sort of implicit sense of danger to it, like as found footage became more popular and became like a blockbuster genre, it kind of lost that, that sense of like, it it gained the sense of like, all right, you like, especially with Cloverfield, another film I adore, but there's no longer the sense of like, this could have happened. And this is like, so sort of almost haunted or cursed. Right. This tape that you're watching. Like Cloverfield still has, even though it's the found footage, it still has a very big feeling to it. Like you have those shots from the helicopter of, you know, the, the, the giant thing, you know, taking over the city and all that. So even though that there's a, you know, it's still a, a handheld videotape, it has the sense of big Hollywood a little bit still, whereas this one is completely yeah. like a like student film, you know, kind of thing. So that really right. adds an effect to it for sure. 
yeah, I yeah. mean, like their 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 limitations, I think, really accentuate like the things that they also did well, which were like the very natural performances that they managed to get out of the actors that ring with. Yeah, like, they're fantastic. Uh, like very real um, frustration and um, like the the unknown, which uh, I've been reading about the film. I was uh, I've come to understand that this film wasn't. I guess typically directed, they just gave the cameras to the actors mm-hmm. and, and the crew just like fucked with them. And like, that was, <laughs> that was the production method. It was literally like, they gave them like little notes about what they were, where they were supposed to walk that day and like what their characters were supposed to go through. But beyond that, they just had them wander around in a forest for days, actually sleeping in tents. And <laughs> at random points, the crew and like the design crew would like set up random shit to spook them or like like the director would come over and like try to kick their tent over while they were <laughs> sleeping and <laughs> dude that's i mean i uh i I would want to think that the actors were like somewhat prepared for that in, in a way. I hope they were. I'm sure. That, all, I'm sure that they were. But, but after also like I have a respect six for it of like not just, being able to sleep because your director keeps knocking yeah. your hands over. <laughs> yeah. So so all those scenes where they look appear tired and and very angry, uh, they might actually be uh, be pretty real. They're just directing it towards the actors instead of instead of the director. <laughs> yeah, it's like it is important. I think to note that like this is not a situation where I think the actors were like. It's not a Stanley Kubrick situation. Where <laughs> yeah, I was no, say, no, no. They're abusing the actors <laughs> to get naturally. They're not abusing them. Like they had. They were just creating an environment for them in which they could yeah. act very exactly. naturally. Like they were. They were safe ultimately, and they were being. Uh, they knew what was going on. They had food and everything. Um, they were okay <laughs> for sure. But also, it's so cool how they created that like. That sense of the unknown terror in them, even though they did know what was going on and they did know it wasn't real. The fact that they didn't really know what was coming, yeah. what they would find outside their tent in the morning. Um, it's just such a cool way to wake a movie. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, that, and they just told them to always keep the cameras rolling basically. So when they went to edit this Heather. film, they, they had 20 hours of footage that they cut down from. I got to say, too, I think it's very smart that they started to incorporate uh, the camera itself as like a device for them to kind of destroy their relationship. Like as as things are going down, Heather just refuses to stop because eventually she tells them it's like it's all she has at this point because they're lost and they have nothing else going for them. Um, but I love that they actually start to talk about the camera itself. Like, why are you even filming this? And I just think at that that point for VHS uh, films like this, that's very smart uh, to to bring that up because eventually that that question has to pop in your head like why why are you even recording this like just survive you know so yeah. I, I like that they they set up a believable character moment for her that that kind of uh, explains explains that well um, and and I I think that Heather Donahue is actually excellent in this oh, film oh yeah she's um, she's great. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. And, and and her performance obviously notoriously hated and once again nominated for a Razzie. What? The same way that they nominated Shelley Duvall in Dude, The Shining. You just keep you just keep slamming these down on me every week. I swear <laughs> to God. I just keep getting so stoked. I'm like, this was great. I can't, you know, blah blah blah. And then and then you just tell me that these people get a no, Razzie. And- I, th- I think it's because she was playing someone who was so real that people just got, and I think all, all, all of them were, that, they, that people got really annoyed by them. And I'm, mm. do you know what's really annoying? Being stuck with people 
for yeah. lost for days. That's really annoying experience. Actually. And they talk very like, like, cause they're breaking down. So they start talking very realistically just in the sense that, you know, like every other word is fuck. And, and they just become something that is very hard to grasp onto and, and like, but I mean, you know, if you see it from the beginning, obviously, you know how they got there. So you, you understand it, but I, I, I can kind of see why audiences might yeah, be like, well, and, whoa, and, and, this and, is a and, lot. And and even the way that they talk, like before they get lost, like it's a like pretentious film studenty a little bit, which oh, is like sure. great. Which is like mm-hmm. it, it, it reminded me of going to film school. I like. But then that. also the way that Heather, like a lot of the time, they get into like bickering about control of the situation, and I think that her performance really captures something real about you know her being the director and having to be confident in her choices so as to not be undermined by the crew in that situation right but also being in a situation that how could one possibly be confident about what's happening or whether they're sane or not and i think that her breakdown scene which is like you know one of the most iconic scene scene in the film no, the one where she's just filming uh, an abstraction of oh, her face with her eye wide. Right. And she's right. finally alone and she confesses her guilt about, you know, the entire situation that like, I'm the one who got everyone here. Like I was in charge while yeah. earlier in the film, she's being like, like she's, she's saying it's not my fault the entire time. So you can tell that she was been like, she's, you know, she's been masking in front of the other two the entire time. Yeah. Another, um, uh, and so it's really heartbreaking. Another great moment for her. Um, which is what I, I thought that you were re- referencing was that log moment where they have been walking for like 15 hours after, I don't know, four or five days of being lost. And she see they first, the boys see the log and they're like freaking the hell out because you know, it's like, we've done this for 15 hours. We went one direction and somehow we came in a circle. And she, what she does is as she approaches the log, she is denying, 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 and she's just like, but the performance is fantastic because as she's denying and getting closer to it, she's just, you can tell that she's breaking down because she's realizing that this is it. Like, there's there's no more excuses. They are truly lost. They have no idea where they're going, and they just spent 15 hours to end up in the same place that they were. So for her to finally, like, break down, go to her knees and say, like, it's over. Like, I don't know what, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know what else to do. Uh, that was a heartbreaking moment uh, for me. Yeah, Heather is a really moving character to me. Um, like, there's this fantastic moment where one of the boys she's with calls her a bitch, and she storms off with the camera, and she's talking about how she planned this project for months, and it's all going wrong. And it's just that, like, it, it embodies such a sort of palpable frustration that goes beyond the situation and the like the gender dynamics of this movie aren't a huge part of it i would say but it is like it is so clear there yeah well i was like it's definitely in the subtext and in in layered into her performance she actually brought up that even as just an actress who got casted to sleep in a tent with two dudes for like 10 days she said that she like brought a knife with her just in case (laughs) so like that was definitely the mode like that she was in just in case she was like these guys probably are cool i'm just like you know i'm not super comfortable sleeping in a tent with two guys i don't know (laughs) for you know uh, being harassed by my filmmaker you know every couple hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah the uh another thing about the go ahead it's what's it's yeah like the that tension is always there. And I think that 
another reason her performance is so great is because for her, it's not just about being lost in the woods and maybe the Blair witches coming to get us. It's also about like, I'm trapped here with these two guys and how well do I really know them? How much can I really trust them? So that like that fear is part of it for her in a way that it's not part of it for her companions. And that's like such an important aspect um, of her performance. I, I, I love her. And I, I want to say an anecdote when she auditioned, they asked her to improvise. They asked everyone to you know, improvise on scenarios, obviously, because it was going to be an improvised movie. And the scenario they gave her was she was uh, a prisoner who had been, she was a mother who had been imprisoned for murdering her children. And she was in her parole hearing. And what would she say to get them to let her out? And what she said is, never let me out. Don't ever let me out. <laughs> Ugh, just like you get chills just thinking about it. It's yeah. so cool. And like that kind of, that terror uh, of both your surroundings and yourself. I think you really see that in her performance. It's, uh, I, I could go yeah. on for days about her. And also, I, by the way, now she grows weed. So she's very cool. <laughs> she is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, another thing about her uh, that I really enjoyed um, was her di- the difference between her playing uh, the, the, the true self Heather and then her like hostess Heather where, mm. where the camera goes on and she almost, she, she gets all kind of like prestigious and, and, and almost in my opinion, I think she was even adding a bit of an accent when she was doing the host <laughs> thing. And mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, I really loved seeing those differences because, you know, you'd have a scene where, um, she, you know, they were kind of just more natural. They were just kind of hanging out, saying whatever, uh, making right, jokes. Like it, 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 it highlights like how raw their actual performances are. Right. Like the characters that they're, they're supposedly playing. <laughs> right. And then how seriously she takes it when the cameras go on and she's playing the host of the, of the documentary. I thought the, those subtle differences were really interesting too. So yeah, Heather yeah, is there's fantastic. A, there's like the performative self on the camera. And then there's the real person who in, in this case, in this film is behind the camera. Right. And then that mixes um, into her kind of putting on a performance for them as they're getting lost and she's not uh, letting them know exactly because she wants to get the footage and all that. So it adds, it's, it's very layered her, her character, especially. Yeah. And I, I think that too, one thing that's really special about, um, this is Esther brought up the idea of sort of like how the footage almost gets sort of abstracted, which I th- I think is the right way of saying it because there, there is uh, because they're using two cameras. I believe one of them is uh, a, a DV camera. And then the other, I think is supposed to be a 16 millimeter black and white camera, which is the one they're shooting the dock on. Right. Right. So it's constantly cutting between these two different cameras that they're filming on. Um, one of slightly higher quality than the other one, but then they're also recording on a DAT device and recording, I think, also on one of the cameras at the same time. So there's like two different points of audio and video, and at any point in the editing, which is, I think, maybe just the genius of the editing of the film, which again, they cut to 80 minutes from 20 hours of footage. (laughs) Uh, I think they said the original cut was like two hours or more or something like that. And they just kept stripping it down to its barest essentials, which I think really works for them. Oh yeah. I think that's, that was a great decision for sure. Um, 
And but just the way that there's a dislocation between the different cameras and between the sounds and the way that sometimes you'll get sound from one camera and video from the other camera, depending on, you know, where they are and where each character is in relation to those cameras at any given time, because we know that they're the cameras are then becoming part of the character as they are holding them. So most of Heather's performance is uh, almost in- entirely uh, like oral yeah. Um, while she mm-hmm. holds the camera and you get to see her make choices through the camera. And then when that gets you into like the final sequence where they get to the house and mm-hmm. they are hearing, you know, like the screams they are, and they, they are getting going the, back the, and forth between the cameras themselves very fast. Yeah, the the, the visual design of them capturing like the handprints on the walls and the really grimy, dirty textures of the house. And then you start to hear Heather screaming, like disembodied screaming from, I think you're first watching it from her camera and you're like, what is she screaming about? Because like she's still moving. And then it goes to the other camera and you can still hear it at the same level. So at this point, like the audio isn't changing, but the cameras are like completely flipping where they are in location. Yeah, and it's, it's like space has like been completely disrupted uh, at that point. And, um, you know, it, it, it's also just a reflection again of how they've all sort of cracked under duress, but at the same time, how the film itself is like breaking down at that point. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then it then it becomes a bit of a just more of like a raw document of 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 the fear. Um, and obviously it it echoes also how they were trying to make a document about like the myth and trying to pass these stories around. And instead they found themselves just like literally uh, inside Becoming of it. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for well, sure. This is one thing that I adore about found footage like you're talking about is this idea that it's not as simple as the person holding the camera. We're just seeing the point, their point of view in kind of a video gamey way. It's like, we're just seeing it through their eyes. It's not, it's not as simple as that because they're holding the camera. They are making not unconscious decisions about where to look like you would expect if it's just their point of view, but conscious decisions about what to show. And the camera can see things that they can't. This is something I love. I love the paranormal activity movies. And this is obviously the whole deal about them right is you set the camera up while you're asleep and what can right. it see that you can't see and that yeah the way that the Blair Witch Project kind of transforms that over time from obviously at the beginning very deliberately what it, what they're showing you because they are Heather is directing it right she is being the right. director to over time it becomes more and more <laughs> unconscious but it is still motivate very clearly motivated in a way that's just like, it's just like, again, I, other movies can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> other movies don't do that. It's, this is something that's so unique to found footage. And I love right. it. Something well, like, I, 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 think, I think that's why when, when it can be done poorly, people will look at that and be like, oh, this feels like just like intentional amateurness. But when it's done yeah. well, and when like the camera itself is being dictated by a character, it's just another mode of expressing character. Which is, yeah. you know, always something that movies should be looking for ways to do at any given time. Well, so people doing it well, like they do it here. I mean, they even bring up the idea where they talk, they literally explicate the idea of the camera as like a filtered reality. Yeah, I was just going to say. You, know, you, can, you can pretend everything is is sort of, you know, like the characters themselves are distancing from this footage that they are then inside of. Yeah. 
And then you think about the idea of that the footage itself that you're watching in that context is then an echo of 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 their lives and their choices, and it, it, it takes on like a whole nother sort of like metatextual horror quality to it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, character moments because it's after like the complete destruction of their relationships, and Josh finally picks up the camera himself, and in this time, and kind of realizes why Heather has been doing it in a way. Um, <laughs> And I just uh, I thought I thought that that was interesting because he and it's it's fascinating because he's still doing it in this like kind of snarky, you know. Oh, yeah, he's an, he he can be a real asshole. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah. by the end everybody is just so at each other's throats. Like when he's when he's uh, in her face saying like here's your motivation. There's no one here that's, to save you. That yeah. whole thing like that shit Brutal. is so crazy. Like I was feeling it. I I felt the the anxiety and the and the enclosed well, and, space that she was feeling it's just like yeah oh. and, and the way that he delivers it it's almost like he's like casting like a spell or something like he's going like he's really into like i felt like he was yeah. giving like professional stage monologue for a second yeah where he's now like you're lost you're angry no one's here to help you and he yeah. keeps repeating that like no one's here to help you and there's no the, one here to help you and here's the thing i i i they all you know have this like deteriorating thing i'm not saying that what he does is uh, good in any way, shape, or form. But I do find it a little you understanding understand at, this, at this point <laughs> in the in the movie. You know, they, they like they're three days over their expected time. They have no food left. All that. I'm not saying what he's doing is helping the situation. I just I'm just <laughs> saying when I see everybody start to deteriorate uh, their minds, I. I Oh, it's, it's, I get it's, it. It's you know? all believable. Yeah, it's all exactly. Believable. Exactly. It doesn't seem I mean, over even, the top the, or evil or anything like that. And, and, and his 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 version is is lashing out, and it's interesting right. because Mike Mike's exactly. version is a little, almost a little bit scarier because he internalizes, and that footage yeah. that she gets of him like sitting alone in front of the tree, oh, is yeah. really scary actually. And you're like, dude, what is he thinking about right now? And he's like, I found cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, and that's like his like he's like, we're good. I've got food. <laughs> uh, another thing, this this was a a great little little moment I found that. This is when they've lost like all hope. I think this is when Josh has been kidnapped or eaten or whatever the hell happens to him. Uh, and uh, and uh, they say they're they're discussing where they want to go, and they they just they're so hopeless at this point that they go, uh, "Which one was the wicked witch in the Wizard of Oz?" And they're like, "It was the West." So they're like, "All right, I guess we're going east." And I just, I just love that the the logic is at the point where they're they have lost all hope that they're just like let's do movie trivia and try to get out of here, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's there's some some really great moments that are subtle, but but really show where their uh, where their mindset is. Mm. Totally. Yeah, pivoting uh, towards the reductive brain around this one gets a really solid to to high four for me for I think yeah. everything that we've 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 already mentioned for the most part. But I I do think that rewatching it this time, I was able to sort of get the metatextual horror of it a little bit more. I, I do need to really sit down and have like that that dark basement viewing of like a VHS copy. I feel like to to really get the full experience out Hell of it. Hell yeah! But I, I do think that there is something unique that it captures about almost the film itself being of like a physical record of psychological like annihilation, basically. <laughs> and that the and that these characters' lives and psyches are echoing through like this very sort of grainy, distanced 
world almost sort of similar to what we were talking about with the shared dream in prince of darkness and the final images of like heather's screams being heard on like the dv camera but through the footage of like this really calmly shot 16 millimeter like the professional footage they were trying to shoot i just find um again like 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 pretty disturbing and again the way also that it 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 echoes them as filmmakers trying to document myth trying to pass along these stories and then finding themselves like literally just in inside of the story and documenting their breakdown and their fear and the production limitations really just lend itself to the naturalism of of capturing that so credit to everyone involved they shot this on like sixty thousand dollars and it really fucking works yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I'm also gonna for it. Uh, before I would say this was more like a three for me, but uh, it's kind of same thing with you, Josh. It's just I I felt like I understood what the uh, the directors were doing. Just more on like a a, t- a technical film level, I understood what things represented a little more. I I think this show has probably helped with that uh, analyzing all these movies. But um, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, the the actors are fantastic. I even really enjoyed the the first like twenty minutes when they were in the town and just kind of speaking uh, uh to the to the town stuff. Yeah, and there's this one uh a part where it's very natural. It's a mother and uh, uh her child, and she's and she's holding the child. And when she starts to mention that the witch uh is real, the kid yeah. starts to like freak out and make her shut her mouth and stuff. And it's just such a natural. Uh, moment and i don't know if like they told the kid you know they're, they're gonna t- tell a scary story or something but it's just it felt so real and uh they have a lot of great moments like that with the townsfolk that feel very natural and it's a great setup for the mm-hmm. for the ghost story that proceeds um, that part is amazing because yeah. it is like it's it's one of the best examples of how just naturally sort of the notion of like of the cursed town and the cursed videotape can arise it's like yeah. the kid who starts like uh screaming and crying as soon as they start talking about the witch it's 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 uh, it's the best it's yeah. like you can't if you, if they had scripted that <laughs> it would have it wouldn't have worked as well as it did it's uh-huh. only because it just happened that it works so well a hundred percent because it's it, it's just such a natural feel and that was one of my favorite parts that it's just so so subtle but it's it's very very effective especially with once again the you know the vhs feel and all that so yeah i'm gonna give it a a four really enjoyed it this time around and yeah yeah for you esther uh yeah for me it's a five it's it's one of my again one of my favorite films of all time it is very near and dear to my heart very special to me uh there's almost nothing else like it it's 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 amazing Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to say, what one line I didn't get to bring up that it really captures too how, how almost, uh, as as an audience member watching this found tape, you are sort of implicated into the curse a little bit. I really like when Heather is doing that uh, breakdown. She does again. Uh, it's become kind of the most iconic image of the film, but like yeah. the fractured mm-hmm. composition of her face, where you can't see it all but all you see is like this really wide eye, like very starkly lit by like the flashlight and like the negative space is just on the pure darkness. But the line that she gives, which I thought was like really Mm -hmm. revealing about what was scary is when she says, "Uh, I'm scared to close my eyes. (laughs) And then she pauses and she says something even worse. I'm scared to open them. (laughs) Yeah. 
And then just the acceptance, because I think the very next line is, I'm going to die out here. And so it's like, and especially listening to her do it, because we've seen her fight that the whole time. Even when it looked really bad, she was still fighting the whole, like, we just have to move forward. We just have to keep going. And to see her look into the camera directly at us and just say, it's it. Like, I don't believe in hope anymore. It's, It's all gone. It is devastating. So, yeah. That line is is so perfect because it's it that in one line it it captures the tension of the film between is it's what's terrifying is what you can see but it's just as terrifying if you know something's there but you can't see it. Yeah, so for sure. I don't know. Yeah, which is which is which is why it's such a good choice too that they don't like really show you anything. I think they they mentioned that they went back and because of audience reactions, because this did get a really terrible cinema score. A lot of people didn't like the film when it came out uh, in theaters. <laughs> uh, they they did go and shoot like a variation on the ending where you did see like Something. images of the witch. I'm pretty sure. And uh, is th- it they out kept there? Because pr- I'm just curious. I, I don't. I don't think it is. I because they. I think they ultimately decided it just didn't work. They were like, no, uh, we 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 really like this completely unknown. This completely like is is any of this real? Could you have even seen it if it was real? Like yeah. just wa- that that ambiguity, which is again a similar ambiguity that Carpenter goes for with his final images for Prince of Darkness too. So, so yeah, what happened? What happened actually is that they did intend. Basically, they dressed up, I think, the film's art director in, like, this all-white outfit, and he was wearing white pantyhose over his head. He (laughs) was uh, chasing Heather as she's running away from the tent. Like, he was there. And they did that because they were... The intention was that she would pan the camera and, like, briefly see him. Um, but she forgot. <laughs> is that is okay? Okay, you know what? That I'm so glad you brought that up because there is a there is a line, and I actually rewound it three times to see if there was anything <laughs> on the on the screen. There, when they're running, I think it's the very first time. While they're running, she quickly turns to the woods, and you don't see anything. But she says, "Did you fucking see that?" And yeah. and and to me, that felt like they were trying to capture something, but they just didn't. But they took the take because it was a really good take, and then used that to a. To, to effect later um so do you, was that the scene possibly yeah or? that would that, that would have been the scene i think it almost certainly was yeah it's and That's it's again it's just like the spontaneity of this movie creating these beautiful perfect moments yeah um if that had gone according to plan the movie would be lesser for it like yeah i, I think undeniably i, I so agree it's yeah it's perfect um yeah because i mean it caused me to be so curious that i rewound it to, to see if I could see <laughs> yeah. anything, you know? And then it has that effect of like, you know, uh, I'm like investigating a VHS tape to see if I can see the ghost or whatever, you know? It's like, <laughs> there's, there's, there's some layers here. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I wanted to say uh, just before we, we head out here, uh, another just really effective line I, I thought was when they were like, did you hear that fucking baby screaming? And, and yeah. just, just to, to, you know, the, the visual of like you're in the middle of Lost Woods and you're hearing a baby scream for no reason. It, that, that that truly is like a complete loss of innocence and just evil. And yeah, and I, I thought that was very effective as well. Yeah. Very subtle things that work uh, really well with this film. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that will, uh, I think, wrap it up for this week's episode. That was uh, Prince of Darkness, 1987 and the Blair Witch Project. 
1999. Thanks so much, Esther, for yes, bringing these films with you this week. If you've got anything to plug, this is the place to do it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me first. Uh, I love being on here. love this show. I had a blast. Thank you. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Esther on film, E-S-T-H-E-R on film, and you can get my links to all my stuff, like my Patreon, which you should uh, pay for. <laughs> yes, uh, precarious time particularly <laughs> um, and you can read all my stuff esteronfilm.com and yeah and I might even have a, a podcast project of my own coming up that I can't talk about Ooh, but nice. that is where I will that's where you'll hear about it well if you're ever looking for guests let us know yeah for <laughs> sure <laughs> All right. Uh, for, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time with an episode that seems a little tasteless now because the situation was a little <laughs> less serious when we decided on but this hey, episode. We're sleazoids. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were we were a little salty a few weeks back when they canceled Bond before the whole situation broke out. And because we had a Bond, a whole Bond episode planned, we were going to do like, uh, I think we were going to do... Uh, Goldfinger and uh, From Russia with Love or something. And we had yeah. to push that episode back because they they moved the Bond movie all the way back to later in the year. But now, since that happened, we don't know if there's ever any new movies coming out again. <laughs> <Yeah>. We <laughs> don't know if the world's ending. So. so we can't be particularly salty at the Bond film anymore. Uh, but either way, we replaced that that episode last minute with uh, viral disease horror. <laughs> <laughs> just Just to get everybody in the right mindset, you know? So, uh, being good young Canadian boys here, we got to do another episode. We pretty much owe him an episode every year. Um, so we are going to be doing, uh, I, I believe what are his first two films. We are going to be doing 1975 shivers, um, which is a bit of a, uh, sexual, <laughs> a, a disease, a disease that they say is an aphrodisiac and a venereal. Yeah parasite at the same time definitely is and yeah it's it's basically viral horror but what if the virus was the uh sexual revolution of the 60s <laughs> uh and then we have rabid from 1977 which uh weirdly enough basically has the exact same premise except uh it, it has a, a, an armpit uh penis monster that attacks people and played by a adult actress too Yes, that actress was supposed to be Sissy Spacek, according to David Crow. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, I think I read that. But he was, you know what? I like Marilyn Chambers. I haven't seen any of her adult films. I swear it. I swear I haven't, <laughs> I but I'm casting her as the lead of my film. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're going to be doing some uh, sort of a quarantine virus horror because Shivers takes place entirely in a Montreal apartment complex as it gets spread, and then Rabid kind of extends the same subject matter into sort of Quebec at at large as it extends into almost Romero-like as it moves into malls and yeah. military bases and things like that. Um, but after that, we are going to be back with another uh, free episode with a guest where uh, for the second week in a row, we are going to do another massive heavy hitter. Uh, someone finally brought on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. 1974. So we're going to be hitting that one up. And it was paired with, and I haven't seen this one. The pairing seems, seems odd to me having <laughs> not seen the film, but other third parties have swore to me that there is something uh, connecting them. And uh, that is Tampopo. From 1985. 
What's uh? What is that? <laughs> it, it looks like something to do. It's a Japanese film about eating okay. noodles. <laughs> that's which that's I, what I'm which gathering. I'm, which so I'm going to assume is going to turn into some type of uh, cannibal eating noodles. Well, I don't know. It's it's just called a comedy, not a horror comedy or anything. Oh, so. interesting. All right. I, well, hell yeah. But yes, it definitely has to do with with families that like their food. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling. A I guess that's going to be the double. <laughs> <laughs> so that will be the double feature in uh two weeks time cool that being said i think that will wrap it up for this week's episode thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy